Voice Nation. Greetings and fortifications, everyone. I hope you are having a wonderful day. I know I certainly am. I know many of you are scratching your heads right now. Fortifications, what does that have to do with medical device sales? Well, we've been talking about the moat around your business, your hospital's business, your surgeon's business is multiple revenue streams. And we here at Device Nation, the voice of operative orthopedics, are here to help you fortify your castle. So I've got a shovel. Let's start digging. I felt like I needed a shovel at a dinner I attended at the most recent academy in Chicago, Fogo de Chao, a Brazilian steakhouse. Never been to one of these before, and oh my. They just kept bringing me wheelbarrow after wheelbarrow full of meat. I completely forgot to turn the disc over that said, stop this madness. And of course, my generation is like, you better eat everything on your plate. So at the end of what felt like a Roman food orgy, I looked to the surgeon next to me and I said, are we supposed to throw up and do this all over again? The good doctor said, no, we're not doing that. Well, something that I felt like should never have been done was one time I brought donuts to the OR for a little in-service and one of the nurses was over by the trash can eating what is arguably the best donut on the planet, Dunkin' Donuts chocolate glazed. And what is it with these blueberry cake people? No matter how many donuts I bring, no matter how many flavors there are at their disposal, there's always the blueberry cake person that wants to know where that diabolically dry confection is. Well, I digress. I realized she wasn't actually eating the donut. She was taking a bite out of it and then spitting it out. And I was like, what in the world is going on here? What are you doing? It's my new diet plan. She beamed. Well, you know what? They say the internet is forever. I think the OR break room is even more forever. If you're going to do something that's just a skosh out there, you're going to hear about it forever and hear about it forever. She certainly did. Donuts remain as the world's most amazing assassination attempt, and they are meant to be consumed. Well, pull up a chair, grab a fork, get a napkin. You're going to love what's on the menu today. It's not 14 metric tons of choice meats. No, we're not going to do that again. It's an amazing conversation with president of the Tennessee Orthopedic Alliance, Dr. Will Kurtz, Surgical Advisory Board for Conformus, founder of Ortho Founders, Digital Committee at AUKUS. We cover a lot of ground from branding to social media to the one thing that keeps patients coming back to a surgeon's waiting room. You're going to want to hang around for it as it is truly inspiring. And I'll tell you somebody else that I think is going to truly inspire you is hearing from his rep, Zach, a veteran of our space for 18 years. And yes, that music can only mean one thing, right? Once this song gets stuck in your head, there's just no going back. So what is Deep and Wide about? Again, it's about fortifying that castle. Going wide, making sure you have multiple streams of revenue when your primary source of revenue, i.e. metal and plastic, is on a decline. And then Deep, the people that are going to be most able to weather the changes and leverage the opportunities are going to be those people who are dug in deep with their respective customers. And it has been an honor to that end, bringing to Device Nation, the voices of reps that I think have something valuable to share on this very topic. So without further ado, let's talk to Zach. Zach, there should be a scouting merit badge for reps that have been mentioned by name by surgeons we've interviewed as being in an elite class 
of awesome. And sir, there you are. Dr. Kurtz mentioned you by name, and I thought to myself, I've got to get him on. And let's talk about the whole deep aspect that we've been talking about here on Device Nation. Welcome to the show, sir. Thank you for having me. So, Zach, as we look at DEEP, you know, we love mnemonics here on Device Nation. D for doctors, E for employees of the hospital, E for employees of our company, and lastly, P for peers. Let's look at doctors here for just a second. Mm -hmm. Any thoughts on what things we should consider as reps to bring the most value to the surgeons in our call pattern? So when I look at how to approach a surgeon, I try and think like that surgeon. I want to put myself in that surgeon's shoes. Uh, The perspective that I think is important for a medical device rep to have is not one of yourself, but the perspective of what the surgeon may be thinking, because the surgeon may be thinking of other variables that you aren't really thinking about as just a rep. And if you can train yourself to put yourself in their place, I think you can become a much better resource for that surgeon. So you're thinking empathy, getting out of your agenda and what you want to get accomplished, but basically just getting into their head and their heart and working out from there. Exactly. I think that understanding where they're coming from and not necessarily what your goal may be, because maybe your goal will get accomplished if you help them accomplish what they want to get done. That's a notable quotable right there, Zach. Great stuff. What does that mean practically for a rep in their day-to-day? For instance, I think the value is not always something that's I think it's missed on a lot of reps when they when they interact with surgeons. Do we need to take the guy to dinner? Do we need to buy him coffee? Do we need to do anything entertainment-wise? I don't think that's necessarily true. I think bringing the surgeon a journal article. Maybe you saw something in JBJS or JOA or CORE that you found unique or interesting. It, it could be about your product. It doesn't have to be about your product. Maybe a surgical approach or a technique. And to email or drop off at his clinic or her clinic a article, I think that adds a lot of value that they may appreciate over just a muffin and some coffee. Agree. Great points all. Now, when we look at hospital employees, any advice to fellow reps on our interactions there? Anticipation. Hope for the best, plan for the worst. My favorite line that I love to hear from a scrub tech when I come in a room or an OR that day is when they say this to me, I've never done this before. That gets me excited because I know that the skills that I have and the preparation that I've I've put into this, we are going to get through this together and you're going to look good. I'm going to look good. And the surgeon is going to be happy because I'm ready to help you get from A to B in any way I can. Great point, Zach. We've all heard that at one point in our career, and that is truly a moment to shine. What about employees of our company, sir? The the people we work alongside every day. What makes a rep the guy or girl that, that everyone speaks highly of, in your opinion? Out in the field, I am the forward-facing representative of a massive company. But it takes a village, it takes a team, and I am only as good as the people behind the line helping me achieve what I need to do day in and day out. Treating those people with respect, whether it's an operations person, an inventory coordinator, maybe a delivery guy, 
helping them achieve their goals is going to help me get my day over with and to have a successful surgery day because I'm working with them and I'm letting them know that we're all in this together. And I know that they have situations and problems that they have to deal with. And if I can help them, they're definitely going to help me in the long run. And I think that's really important. That is important. I found that just letting them know how good they are at what they do. When a compliment is due to make sure you're there to dish it out, it just seems to go a long ways because a lot of times people on the inside, the only time they hear something is when something's not going right, right? Exactly. What's interesting about that is we have a driver that helps get stuff to us and to the to the hospital, to our office and back and forth. We're down a, a driver right now and he had to take Friday off just as he was kind of burnt out and needed a break. And our operations manager sent everybody an email out letting everyone know that he was going to be there on Friday. And I couldn't wait to respond to that email to let him know and everybody on the email chain how well earned and overdue he was going to get his day off on Friday. Couldn't have been happier to send that email. That's awesome. Zach, what about peers? You know, we're working in the hospital and there's reps all around us that that may compete directly with us. Uh, Any thoughts on how we go back and forth with them? I've got a lot of respect for the competition and the people that do the same job I do, but for a different company. At the end of the day, we're all trying to just be successful. And especially in our line of work where you're 100% commission and this is a zero sum game. If I get new business or if I lose business, that means somebody else is getting new business or somebody else is losing their business. And, and that's not lost on me. Anything can happen in this industry and in this space. And treating your competitor with respect is something that I think needs to be understood and followed. Touche. The people across the aisle might be on your team next month, given all the changes in orthopedics these days, right? <laughs> exactly. Well, sage words, sir. And again, I I tip my hat in your general direction. You're doing great work up there. It's not going unnoticed. Well done. I really appreciate that, Kevin. Uh, it's it's an honor and a pleasure to uh, speak with you. Strong contribution there, Zach. Appreciate you coming on and sharing your thoughts. One thing that he said that really jumped out at me, and I quote, maybe what you want to accomplish will get done when you help the surgeon accomplish what they want to get done, unquote. That is suitable for framing. Reminded me of this great Charles Dickens quote, no one is useless in the world who lightens the burden of others. When we put on the surgeon what we want to get done, we are literally transferring our burden onto them. Zach nailed it. The key is when you figure out how to lighten their burden. And in that process, oftentimes your goals are realized. There's no you in box opener, right? Well, let's do a quick wide out. Wide is all about looking for multiple revenue streams to offset CMS cuts. On our primary source of revenue, your surgeons are looking at this. Your facilities are looking at this. We need to be looking at this. Here's one for you, G21. I have a soft spot for Simplex. I'm old school. I always like the way it mixed and handled. And G21 gives me that same peaceful easy feeling. A scrub recently went out of her way to tell a surgeon I work with just how much she liked it from her vantage point, mixing it standard and low viscosity with gent, no gent options. They have a really cool hip, knee, slash shoulder spacer mold. If kyphoplasty is something you want to add to your armamentarium, well, they've got that too, all at a value proposition price point that will put you on your purchasing director's Christmas card list. Check it out at g-21.it. Tell them Device Nation sent you their way. I am personally thankful 
that Dr. Kurtz came our way to share his life and dispense some great advice in the process. A great visionary thinker. I walk away after every conversation with him inspired, and I know you will be too. Dr. Kurtz, welcome to the show, sir. Thanks for having me, Kevin. I really appreciate it. Dr. Kurtz, I'm excited to talk to you. You've been doing a lot of awesome stuff for a long time, and I, I really look forward to asking about the AUKUS Digital Committee, Conformus, Ortho Founders, patents, a lot of things. But first, let's go back to Houston, Texas, sir. What put you on the path to medicine? Well, thanks, Kevin. Please uh, call me Will. I'm pretty informal. You know, I guess what started out my career in ortho is when I was like 16, I went to Methodist Hospital and worked with an orthopedic surgeon. And I watched him try to extract a femoral component out of a total hip. And he broke about every instrument in that OR. And I fell in love. It was just, uh, it was perfect. So I wrote my college essay and my med school essay. Not, you know, I want to go to medical school. It's like, I want to be a joint replacement surgeon and do hip and knee replacements was the only thing I ever really wanted to do. Wow. And so that's kind of how I set, set my sights on that path. You know, I've met a few mechanical engineers in my life that turned out to be orthopedic surgeons. And uh, there you are. I did mechanical engineering strictly because I wanted to do joint replacements. So I figured that would be the best undergrad degree to get me where I am today. Tell me about your residency. Any highlights, uh, any mentors along the way that, that really uh, put you in the right direction? Yeah, I did a residency at Vanderbilt. Vanderbilt's a phenomenal place and I still live in Nashville now. So they're just right down the street from me. Still feel a huge connection to Vanderbilt and, and, and in forever in their debt for the training I got there. Vanderbilt's phenomenal in the sense they really balanced both supervised and kind of independent learning. I got tons of OR experience there and learned how to how to get yourself out of a bind, but then also uh, had a lot of great supervision. So all the providers there were fabulous. Andy Shiner was our joint replacement surgeon at the time, and he was great. And then uh, Jet Kuhn was our shoulder guy, and, and those were both phenomenal orthopedic surgeons. And the hand guys were Jeff Watson and Doug Weikert, and I really, really enjoyed them. I thought about thought about all those different aspects, but ultimately ended up doing doing a joint replacement fellowship in Boston. Otto Afranc, that's a name in our yeah. world. It was a very polite and nice organization in that, that I operated a lot. I worked hard when I was there, but they were very respectful of my time when, when we weren't you know committed to cases. So my wife and I were just newly married, so we had a, had a great time living in Boston for that year. And then we moved back to Nashville after that. Fifteen years later, here you are, the Tennessee Orthopedic Alliance. Tell me about your practice these days. What are you doing? What are you excited about? I do almost all hip and knee replacements. You know, I do a little bit of call work here and there, but nothing major there. And then I, I spend a fair bit of time doing a lot of administrative tasks as well. But it's it's been good. I've, I've really enjoyed the private practice and, and kind of learning the business side of the orthopedic practice. It's It's been fun. Well, let's talk metal and plastic for just a second. So you've been on the Conforma Surgical Advisory Board for some time. And tell me about your experience with that. When I saw that you had a mechanical engineering background, I thought the depth at which you can go into this procedure with Conformus, that was probably a good fit for you. Yeah, it was great. You know, prior to Conformus, I was trying to do kinematic alignment kind of on my own, just kind of using first principles of restoring anatomy. And, you know, I kind of came up with my own algorithm that is pretty close to what most people would say is uh, calipered uh, kinematic alignment now. But I was doing all that before conformist. 
And then I kind of saw what Conformis was doing. And basically, they were solving all of those issues and problems that I was trying to do in the operating room. They were doing it, but they were doing it through customization of the implant thicknesses and, and shapes of the implants. So it took a lot of the pressure off. I didn't have to do all that calculation in the operating room. And that's what I fell in love with. And that's kind of why I took a significant interest in their technology. We've had Dr. Stephen Howell on the show, and I don't even need to tell you what his thoughts are on kinematic alignment. Tell me what's been your experience uh, as you've watched your patients over the years doing the procedure that way. I've talked with Stephen about the concept, and, and I would say that the conformist technology and the kinematic technology are really one and the same. They're both striving for the same goal. Personally, I think that the kinematic alignment or conformist technology just helps restore anatomy so that you're not compounding errors in the operating room. I think that's a little bit, maybe a, a deep dive for this podcast, but Ultimately, what we end up doing in the operating room is we end up kind of externally rotating our femoral component a lot of times to correct for the fact that we are not restoring their native oblique joint line. So when you start going down that path, it just leads to one issue after another. So I think if you can truly just restore their anatomy the way God made it, I think that's always a good rule of thumb. And then so that's kind of why I picked that conformist technology. Agreed. I like that phrase. Uh, I had a dear surgeon friend of mine that used that all the time. You did some research, fluoroscopic analysis of one of the big box knees versus conformist uh, PS and CR. What did you discover? Yeah, we, I did. Uh, I took about 100 of my patients and half of them were CR and half of them were PS and half of them were off the shelf and half of them were conformist. So that was four different cohorts. And we sent them all down to Rick Comistack over at Knoxville. So that was about a two hour drive, two or three hour drive for my patients. But they went over there and he did fluoro analysis. It was really fascinating. It's humbling to see your own work, you know, portrayed for you in front of like a fluoroscopic analysis of how your joints actually did. As a general rule, my uh, anatomic or, or conformist knees, uh, they, they basically just had less lift off and more and less paradoxical rotation. So they were just moving a little bit, a little bit better. So that was the main takeaway. And I think that just goes to ultimately what was happening is my off the shelf knees were starting out externally rotated when the knee was in full extension. And so it couldn't externally rotate anymore. So they had no choice but to paradoxically kind of move forward on the lateral side. So that's kind of speaks to what I was getting at earlier is you, you make one correction because you're not restoring the joint line. And then that just leads to more downstream issues that we don't fully understand. And you can't really understand in, in part until you kind of look at it under fluoro and see how the knee actually is moving you know, through all motions and different things that the patients are asked to do. You think that technology is kind of at the peak of the diminishing returns curve now, or is there even more opportunities for advancement uh, over the horizon with it? If you ask Wall Street, I'd say the, the margins on a customized knee are, are definitely lower than they are on an off-the-shelf knee. So from a business case, I think that's it's been a harder market to play to to generate a lot of revenue from because it costs a little bit more to make those implants and you're not getting paid the premium that, you know, for all that extra, extra work that goes into creating the implant. Right. From a technology standpoint, you know, I think that uh, the customized implants are nice. And then the question is just, uh, can you operationalize it so that, you know, the surgeon can deliver that customized implant right where you're at in terms of advancements? I think, you know, maybe navigation or something like that still might be able to help with the, you know, the intraoperative placement of those implants, but we'll see. You did some papers out there. I had a 
couple questions. One of them inspired me from a product that I saw at the AUKUS meeting. Does increased cement pressure produce better ephemeral component fixation? And there was a gadget out there at the meeting for better cement penetration on the tibial side. I was just wondering what you found out. So I did that one when I was a freshman in college. So <laughs> you went way back in the, yes, in the I did. ball for that one. So yeah, I was I was a mechanical engineer freshman in college and and I was just doing some research and I was going into the Houston County morgue at 6 a.m. to pick up cadaver bones wow. to go could go do that pressurization study and I was not in medicine at the time and I still remember that to this day because they gave me the key and I just had to go in and go to the morgue it was it was it was moving I guess but well, I'm sorry I brought it up it's probably some no, dis- disturbing uh, imagery that you're still dealing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I threw a bunch of dead bones in the back of my car and then drove to the lab and did the, did the study. And yeah, it was weird times. Is there value in that? I, I mean, I was looking at this product to push cement even further into the cancellous bone bed and a scrub tech and I were talking about it. And she said, well, it's a great idea until you've got to revise it and dig all that cement out. And and I thought, well, you know, that's a good point. I was just wondering what you thought. No, I, you know, I haven't cemented a hip. I've probably done two cemented hips in the last 10 years, so can't say that I have uh, have much experience with that anymore. You know, on the knee side, just one little trick that I always do is I always, uh, you know, suction my all of the holes I can possibly think of suctioning and, and pull the cement into the cancellous bone just using suction techniques. But uh, I haven't seen any tools on the knee side. Were you seeing it on the knee side or the hip side? The knee side. It was a, a tibial punch to just drive it in deep, so... In 2007, you did a paper on the detection of implants by airport metal detectors. You know, and I still get asked that question all the time. Can you just put it to bed definitively once and for all? <laughs> yeah, no, that was a residence paper that we did. And it was about half, half the time it got detected, half the time it didn't. I always tell my patients it's how, how briskly they walk through the metal detector determines whether or not it's going to set it off. So if you kind of ease through a metal detector, usually you'll be okay. Patents, doctor. You're a prolific patenter, 11 of them out there. Tell me about your improved constrained liner. What did you come up with? Oh, wow. Um, So that was an idea that I had that was basically to make a constrained liner just like you do a uh, dual mobility liner, except to make the polyethylene actually a constraint. So you would basically you know, press the femoral head into a constrained liner and then impact that into the acetabular component, but never went anywhere. At that time in my life, I was writing patents pretty, pretty regularly. And then I would, you know, try to pitch them to companies and see if I could get somebody interested in the idea. And sometimes I could, and sometimes I couldn't, but that one fell by the wayside, but it's still, I thought a good idea. It just never went anywhere. I understand there was a a leg measurement device you came up with that almost won you a Larry Dora award. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You had some advanced knowledge of that one. So no, it was, uh, you know, this was like two years into my career and I was a young, young whippersnapper, thought I was going to change the world. And I submitted a paper to AUKUS, and it was just on my leg link measurement device that I thought was revolutionary. And so about two months after I submitted the paper, I got a, a, a notice from the AUKUS office saying that I needed to get my manuscript submitted because I was one of the two finalists for the Larry Dore Award. And then the next day, they called me and said, no, 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 no. 
it was actually Stephen Kurtz, not Will Kurtz, who was the <laughs> finalist for Larry Gordon, which made a lot more sense. Stephen Kurtz has done phenomenal research in polyethylene and all sorts of other things. But it was a roller coaster of emotions. I went from basically thinking that I was, you know, the next greatest coming of uh, the orthopedic surgeon God to being a nobody. And uh, and, and the kicker of it, I was like, you know, I asked the office when they gave me my my bad news. I was like, did I even get selected for poster? And of course I didn't. So oh. it was a, it was heartbreaking. But like a phoenix from the ashes, doctor, here you are. <laughs> I met you through Ortho Founders Group, a group that I am honored to participate in. Uh, I was wondering uh, what inspired you to start it? Yeah, that was uh, roughly about 2018. Mike Havig and I, uh, he's down in South Florida. We both started companies and basically we were pitching each other on the benefit of our companies. And we realized that, you know, this was a challenging thing to do to try to start a company as an orthopedic surgeon and it, it, we needed a support group. And so we got together with the two of us and also with Jay Crawford, who's in Knoxville. And basically we just put together monthly Zoom meetings and we would all tell the other 30, 40 orthopedic surgeons on the call about what we were trying to accomplish. And basically we all helped each other out and still do. And it's been great. It's a nice network of entrepreneurially minded orthopedic surgeons who are trying to make the world a better place. You know, a lot of great ideas have come out of that, that group and I'm honored to kind of continue to participate. And if anybody's out there is listening, wants to tell the ortho founders group about their startup, just give me an email or call or text me and uh, we'll get you on and, and let you tell the group about what you're trying to do. So it's basically just help. You know, at one point we thought we might try to make it a little bit more about fundraising and, and capital, but it end up, ended up coming more just of a support group and hasn't been that much on the financial side of the equation. But uh, I've made a presentation or two on that Zoom call and really enjoyed the feedback that I've gotten from just an amazing group of people. Is there a website that you can point people to uh, to learn more about the organization? Yeah, it's just orthofounders.com. It's got all the companies listed on there and there's a contact form there. So you can just reach out if you want to join or if you want to uh, present, just let us know and we'll work you in sometime either. We try to do it about once every month or two. Well, you brought up AUKUS, doctor. Let's go back to Dallas for a minute. You're on the digital committee with AUKUS. Tell us a little bit about your role there. Oh, there's probably about seven or eight of us that are on that committee. We basically just uh, try to help AUKUS with their digital footprint, um, which sometimes it's social st social media stuff. Sometimes it's, you know, shooting videos to kind of help get the word out. Ultimately, it's just a way to give back. It's it's something that interests me. I, I've always wanted to support AUKUS, and, and I've uh, always been interested in kind of the digital realm. So it made sense for me to try to help out in that way. So I've really enjoyed it. I've learned a lot from the other guys on the, in the committee. They're all great. Stefano Bini uh, kind of chairs it, and he does a phenomenal job there. And he's He's out in San Fran, so he's kind of got his ear on a lot of the Silicon Valley hype. So it's kind of fun to hear what his thoughts are on that stuff. Done some articles on your blog, which, by the way, I've enjoyed reading that. And I'm going to read a quote from you. Controlling the end of the patient's journey, i.e. surgery, does not protect orthopedic providers from disruption at the start of the patient's journey. How digital health could disrupt orthopedic providers. Uh, tell us a little bit about that article and tell us a little bit about your blog. Yeah. So I just uh, have always kind of been interested in how the business of orthopedics gets uh, gets planned out. I like to think strategically. 
Um, I'm our, our group is 106 orthopedic surgeons and I've been the president for the last two years. So I've kind of always had that strategic mindset. So I, I kind of write these blogs in large part just to kind of get my thoughts straight. You know, the research and stuff that I put into them kind of helps me consider all the different options. But one of the that that blog and then I wrote a contrarian blog to that one, which is why, you know, orthopedic providers would not get disrupted by digital technology. But, you know, obviously every other industry is going through this uh, disruption and how technology has changed the distribution of everything we do in the world. It just remains to be seen whether or not the same thing could happen to orthopedic surgeons. I think as a general rule, when orthopedic surgeons are looking out for their patients' best interests, it basically strengthens our brand and gives, uh, gives us more power in the overall ecosystem. And so um, I think that that's kind of your should be everybody's North Star and and what we do every day is basically just serve our patients to the best of our ability. And then when we take advantage of the situation and do unnecessary surgeries and, you know, provide care that is inappropriate or charge too much for things, I think that weakens our brand and opens up the opportunity for somebody else to get between us and our patients. And so Part of that, you know, how digital health could disrupt orthopedic surgeons, but just looking at companies like Hinged Health, is that going direct to employer and charging a, you know, just a per member per month fee to the employer and their whole website says that they can save $5,000 for every person they are in, enroll in their musculoskeletal spend. And so when they say things like that, you know, that $5,000 is $5,000 that they say is not coming to orthopedic providers. And that should be scary. And if they develop a better model and one that delivers health care or musculoskeletal care in an effective way, they could, you know, change how, you know, how we're thought of as orthopedic or musculoskeletal providers. And so I think we just need to be careful. I think orthopedic providers need to be careful about these, you know, potential disruptors. It's not as easy just for a digital health company to come in and do steps like that. But there are lots of people running a lot of small experiments and you never know which ones are going to make it. And digital and Hinge Health has, you know, their valuation is, I think, three billion now. So they're, you know, by definition, the largest market cap orthopedic provider in the world. Yeah. So, I mean, we need to pay attention to that sort of stuff and not just take for granted that, that you know, customers will keep coming to us for their musculoskeletal care. And the premise of the quote that you just gave was that, you know, if we aren't involved in the very beginning of the journey, then we will be left cleaning up, you know, whatever people don't want down the road. So we need to be sure that people come to us first for the their musculoskeletal care and not go to a digital app or not go to, you know, the Dr. Google or whoever it is for their really definitive musculoskeletal care. Otherwise, we're going to be we're going to be left dealing with the stuff that no one else wants to deal with on their terms, not on our terms. I'm sure sometime in your career, you've heard a surgeon say Amazon will never be able to replace a knee as well as I can. Uh, What would you say to that mindset? Yeah, I think it's a little bit narrow minded in the sense that Amazon will never try to replace a knee. That's not their goal. But if Amazon controls the beginning of the journey through Alexa or somewhere else, you know, you, you know, they can control where that patient goes for their knee replacement. And, you know, I think Amazon's advertising business last year, I think it was like 17, 18 billion dollars of revenue. And it's growing like 30, 40 percent. It's it's phenomenal uh, business engine that's just cranking out cash. You got to figure that eventually you're going to turn that on for all different verticals. And right now you can ask your Alexa app to basically, you know, what's, you know, what's wrong with my knee or, you know, what should I do with a swollen knee? And, and Alexa will give you an answer 
it's uh it's kind of a watered down answer but it's not hard to conceive of in the near future that at some point they would say we recommend that you go see dr x at his clinic you know five miles away and that's uh, a recommendation because dr x is paying amazon for advertising on alexa so great content nashvillejointreplacement.com i'm going to put a link in it in the show notes i learned a lot uh, reading some of your writings there very strategic very future focused great 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 stuff you know you said that word appropriateness uh, dr marty mccary has kind of made it his paul revere moment on so much media these days uh, tell us a little bit about that word and, and what it means to you yeah i think that's where orthopedics is headed for the next five or 10 years. I think in the, you know, in the past 30 years, everything has been about quality and it's because that's a little bit easier metrics to measure, but we've always just, you know, assigned, you know, a surgeon's worth in the world as their quality scores, which is their, you know, proms, patient report outcome measures, or their readmission rates or their infection rates, dislocation rates. That's kind of how everyone has always historically thought about it. And for that, you know, quality is what really happens after we deliver a treatment. And I think what people are beginning to focus on now is that decision point when we go from, you know, before treatment to how do we decide to initiate treatment. And that's really appropriateness. It's, you know, I'm seeing a patient in the, in the clinic space and I decide whether or not they need an MRI or whether or not they're a good candidate for surgery. All those different things that uh, really probably has a greater impact on the overall cost of healthcare than quality scores. Because I can do a phenomenal surgery and have great patient outcomes, but if the surgery wasn't really necessary to begin with, then I actually did a disservice to that patient. So, you know, quality scores, you know, telling me if I'm good in the operating room, but they don't necessarily tell, you know, the system whether or not I'm actually providing the best care. I think, uh, you know, Dr. McCary uh, has uh, studied dermatology and OB-GYN and, and picked out little pieces of tidbits about where they overutilize healthcare services in one way or another. And I think that we're going to start seeing that in orthopedics. And I think we're going to start being judged by that uh, in the years to come. Well, I'm so thankful I got to run into you on the exhibit hall space out at Dallas. And uh, it was just amazing to be standing on the floor and seeing all this energy and exciting uh, new technologies. Was there anything on just the exhibit hall uh, that jumped out at you? Because I know you were going around and checking everything out. Uh, any wow moments for you? Um, the only one was uh, the one that you've mentioned on your podcast before was that Riviera Extraction Tools for Femoral Components on Total Hips. I thought that was pretty fascinating. I'm definitely looking forward to trying that out. You know, everything seemed to be a lot more digital focused. I think all the companies are trying to push their patient engagement apps. I think they're all going to be fairly ubiquitous and, and pretty similar. I think there's a race to capture that data. And I think, you know, the implant companies that successfully do that will have a advantage over the implant companies who can't. Those were the two things that I kind of saw that I guess jumped out at me. You and I had a wonderful conversation. It, I thought about it on the trip home. It was just very thought-provoking. There we were amongst all these smaller companies at a level I've never seen before, selling metal and plastic solutions. And and you brought up the whole challenge moving into this uh, cost containment world of the two-vendor contract with hospitals and what, a, a, I guess, an environmental threat that would pose for these smaller players. Uh, I was wondering if you had any other thoughts on that. I, I've certainly 
thought of a few other points since we've talked last, but would love to hear what you had to say. You know, I mean, I think that uh, the big the big companies do those two dual vendor contracts specifically to keep out the smaller players, which in some ways hurts innovation. I think most innovation these days are happening on a small scale. And then if it becomes successful, then the big big companies will, you know, acquire those companies. So I think uh, I think the small companies have a, a vital role in our ecosystem. And we can't can't forget about that. It's, it's basically the hospital trying to aggregate the demand side to limit the you know limit their I guess their exposure to expensive contracts. But it's um, I don't know. What are your thoughts, Kevin? You, you, <laughs> you had some interesting thoughts. I'd love to hear your thoughts. One of the dirty little secrets that some hospitals don't like all these vendors is just the hassle of managing all the administrative side of these different companies when it comes to the information for the company and all that. I've seen some hospitals actually outsource that and put that in the rep slap where we're basically doing the job of purchasing. And I don't think that's a bad trade-off if you're going to allow more people into the hospital to put that onus on us to to take ownership over the purchasing function in terms of just making sure everything's entered right, the cap numbers and all that stuff, and make it easier on them. I think that's somewhat disruptive. The other thing that hit me after you and I talked was I was just thinking about the peak femoral component, not so much from a company perspective, but just the disruption that's going on at such a fast pace right now. And I think the buying groups that are doing these multi-year contracts are artificially locking in what some would argue might be a high price because there's technologies coming quickly that are really going to bend the price curve. And uh, if I was a buying group, I I think I would be less focused on minimizing uh, the headcount of vendors and be more focused on what value I'm looking at globally. And then whoever wants to play ball in that sandbox, then then come on. But like you said, not limiting vendors and limiting potential innovation or, again, locking in a price now that in six months may be way too high because of some new technology that's just right around the corner. So in that, in that model, the rep actually almost becomes a consultant for the hospital. Is that kind of... What you're explaining? Agreed. I, I've seen more and more of that. It's been going on in spine. And the only reason why I'm really attuned to this, my daughter is a spine rep, and I've seen this market unfold. And I think when you and I were standing on the floor and I looked around, I thought this is uh, deja vu all over again. We're starting to see that same thing unfolding. I'm seeing more rep that are like modern day spine reps and that they have multiple companies in their bag act as consultants for the surgeon and for the system, whereas the old model was I work for a company and my job is to convince as many people to buy products from my company. This new way of doing things isn't new at all. Like I said, it's been done for a while in the spine space. So it's it's interesting to watch. I don't know if it's going to end the same way or turn out the same way, but it's definitely changed. Seems like that would work for fragmented markets, but not for arthroplasty, which is pretty consolidated. I'm not going to argue with you. I, I, I don't know where it's going to go. What's that old saying? History doesn't repeat itself, but it sure does rhyme a lot. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> and, uh, I'm seeing some rhymes to spine, but but we'll see. I don't know. In the meantime, it sure is fun to watch. It is. Let's move out of the exhibit hall for just a second, Doctor, and uh, let's go to the Grand Hall. Uh, Any presentations, any symposiums that really jumped out at you this year? Um, I really like Brian Springer's uh, analysis of uh, antibiotic usage around dental visits. I thought that was fascinating. It's hard to change my practice. I came home and told all my staff that I'm no longer doing dental prophylaxis, which was 
an amen from all of them. So that was uh, one. I thought there was um, definitely a couple other ones just around antibiotic use around revision surgeries that was uh, pretty enlightening. But um, they, I always like Lowry Barnes' talks on the f- business and the financial side of how we're all getting squeezed. It was that slide that showed that, you know, whatever, 10, 15 years ago, we were making 70% or so of our revenue from sur- surgery. And that now we're right about 50-50. And then in the next, you know, five or 10 years, it's going to be more like 60-40, which uh, more more revenue from the clinic side than from the surgery side, which I think is premise that a lot of orthopedic surgeons are going to intuitively want to fight and have a hard time, but they're going to lose because CMS is going to make the uh, incentives to, you know, less on surgery and more on what do they call it? Knowledge-based uh, delivery or something like that. But sure. Anyway, so I think that's uh, going to be an interesting trend. I think everybody, all the survey stuff was basically, Jay Lieberman always does show that we're all struggling to keep uh, nurses employed and get our OR staff, you know, properly staffed so that we can do all the cases that we need to do. And that was, uh, I think, a problem that is not going away anytime soon and it's going to continue to stress our system. Here's a crazy thought. Do you think we'll ever see what we see already around the world, reps being able to go get their scrub tech credentials and to be able to assist in the cases where their implants are being utilized as a means of helping out in this employee shortfall that a lot of hospitals are dealing with? Well, I would love that one um, because my reps are phenomenal in Nashville. I'm blessed with with really really great reps across the board. I would definitely welcome them to be my scrub, but I think that the reps that I know are struggling to service the cases that they have because right. they're spread out in ASCs and all different hospitals, and you know the the facility side of the equation is also get, getting fragmented, and it's harder and harder for the reps to get everywhere. And so I think if you tie them into the OR and ask them to scrub, one they're taking on a pretty significant liability. And I don't think the companies would like that. And then I think they're just as stressed as everyone else. I don't think that they're like this willing, willing, able body of uh, employees that are just waiting to jump in and help out in a in a dire stretch. I think they're just as stressed as everyone else is. I didn't say it was a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll run it. I'll run it by my reps and see what they say. I think it's going to be a hell no. <laughs> Look, I got this great idea. We're going to chain you to the hospital. <laughs> um, so, question: We've been doing this deep and wide series on the podcast and just talking about reps and and how we dig in deep on some different sections of our business, but also the wide aspect of not being hostage to some of the challenges on the metal and plastic, but looking for opportunities to add products to our portfolio to, to help offset some of that. And I was thinking about you right at that very moment when you talked about the percentages and how the challenges of making your overhead are, are getting more profound by the year. What can surgeons be doing over the next coming years to go wide in their own practices? What can they add? What ancillary services do you think are, are coming that they can grab onto to try to grab as much of that continuum of care as they can? That's a great question. That's something I actually think about quite a lot. I think that uh, musculoskeletal providers need to basically obviously stay within the musculoskeletal space, but I think at least in my organization, I'm trying to get us into more retail space, which is going to be things like uh, personal trainers and nutrition services and weight loss and things like that, just because it has such a huge impact on musculoskeletal care. And I think um, I think musculoskeletal providers, we, we have if we stay within our lane and, and stay within that space, I think we're in good shape. 
things like uh, DME, I think we're going to get our clocks cleaned by Amazon. You know, I don't think that that is a sustainable ancillary for most muscle scale providers. But in my organization, we have all the, the basics. We have PT, we have MRI, we have ASCs, therapies, hand therapy, and all that other stuff. But those are pretty traditional for most MSK groups. I think the more retail space, I think uh, the urgent care space, as long as it's musculoskeletal, urgent care is a, a must-have these days. It's amazing how we've we've expanded our musculoskeletal urgent cares, and they've been immensely successful at getting uh, patients in the door. I think in this world, this is kind of a, a my next blog is is we live in a world of abundance. And in a world of abundance, patients demand immediate access to everything. And if you can't provide immediate access, then they just move on to the next group or someone who can. So um, in that in that world, you have to be available to your patients in their neighborhood. They can't, you can't expect them to drive all over creation, but you have to be close by and you have to be, have hours that fit to their calendar and their schedule. Otherwise, they're going to find somebody who else who does and once they get checked into, you know, whatever urgent care or ER or whatever visit they, they initially do, most times they follow that pathway that gets set for them by that urgent care. And you just want to make sure that that's your pathway as a musculoskeletal provider. That they're, you know, they're, their first steps into getting treatment are with your organization and not some outside organization. So that's where we're headed. That makes a lot of sense. I'm hearing more and more about the orthopedic urgent care clinic within context of a larger practice. It, it almost reminds me of uh, the feeder system that high school athletics often is, right? You, you treat an injured yeah. uh, player on the field and that leads to a patient in your office. Yeah. One of the things that I've, I've kind of realized is it, it, when you talk, I mean, we're a really, really big organization, but we are basically, you know, we are a larger, you know, volume driven organization and it's okay for us to accept lower margins on some service lines if it still increases volume, because, you know, it, it's still a net win for us, even if we are delivering care with PAs and not capturing the full, you know, revenue that we would get if they were seeing an MD. If you capture the volume, it just feeds your whole musculoskeletal delivery system. And and that's really the crux or to successful musculoskeletal group is, is having growth and volume that's coming through your door. For all the surgeons out there listening now, what advice would you have for them in trying to move the ball downfield in the climate we're in? I think one of the biggest unmet needs that we can all do is improve communication. I think that uh, patient communication, that is, I, I think uh, our patients often leave our offices and they capture a small bit of what we tell them. So I think uh, personally what I've tried to do is develop, you know, both written and video content that I send out to most of my patients afterwards to kind of summarize, you know, what I think their next steps are and, and just give them good information about, you know, it's for me, it's just non-operative care for knee arthritis and hip arthritis. And then, you know, what it means to get surgery. So those are the, I mean, those are the kind of concepts that are pertinent to my practice. But I think every surgeon needs to develop that content and then figure out a way for their patients to be able to reference that. I think better education for patients builds your brand and keeps people coming back to you as opposed to, you know, so many times I ask a patient who did your surgery four years ago and they cannot for the life of them remember that surgeon's name. 
I think that's a missed opportunity by that surgeon not to have developed a better relationship with their patient through more touch points, more engagement points. That's what I'm focusing on these days. That's good stuff. What about digital touch points? What advice would you have for surgeons looking at this social media world and how to engage it? I'm not very great with social media in the sense that I try never to put something out that I would think most people would find boring or you know just gloss over. So um, I don't engage with social media a ton, but I do think there is a lot of opportunity to deliver content that is meaningful, but you have to be careful to make sure your content is meaningful. So just content for content's sake is, in my opinion, um, you know, worse than nothing. But then uh, I think the content also has to be genuine, which only happens if you do it yourself. You know, there's so many orthopedic surgeons out there that have a website that they've never seen or, you know, some web designers saying that they crank, you know, have all these page views and all that stuff. But if your website's not genuine, if your content that you put out is not genuine, people see right through it and they know they can tell when somebody else is writing your content. So I think you have to you have to do it yourself and you have to mean it and you have to make it you and not some, you know, cookie cutter of, you know, 10 different other websites. You know, we've talked a lot about this new world for surgeons. Wondering what advice you would have for reps. Uh, how can we provide maximum value to you all in the midst of it? Yeah, I'll, I'll give a shout out. One of my reps, his name's Zach. He's phenomenal. He brings me content from time to time and says, hey, I saw this article. I think you really like it. Or I read this podcast or something like that. And I think you've mentioned that on your your previous podcast. But you know, I love it when reps will curate information for me and tailor it to my likes and desires and, and know what I like and say, you know, this and not necessarily every, you know, I don't mind if they occasionally sell to me, but it shouldn't be that every time they're coming in my door, it's to do a sale. It, it should be more like, you know, I'm providing services. And for me, I could care less and actually deter them from you know, bringing coffee or something like that. I think that's a deterrent to my clinic space and the way it runs. But when they actually bring me content and improve knowledge, that's a win for me. So that's, I think, the biggest recommendation I would have to reps is figure out what you can do to, you know, drive content that your your surgeon's going to like to hear. I love that, sir. And I think that's a, an opportunity that AUKUS provides in spades is an opportunity for reps to look through all the material that was presented. And like you said, great word, just curate that content and then look at a local application. Maybe there was something that was presented. Maybe it was a technology on the exhibit hall that really solves an issue or answers a question uh, locally. Well said. Good stuff. Your wife is a physician. I just found that out. Yeah. She's a cardiologist by training, but she um, actually runs Vanderbilt's concierge clinic. So she's amazing. I mean, she is the most detail-oriented primary care doctor and cardiologist you will ever find. Her patients absolutely love her. She's the type of person, she spends four hours with her patients the first time she meets them, which is amazing. Not many providers do that. And then she writes up a 10-page note on them with every single detail of everything that's ever happened to them. So I couldn't be prouder of her. She's a phenomenal person. And I always claim that she's the good Dr. Kurtz. Uh, I'm the other one. (laughs) You think we'll ever see a cross-pollination of that concierge model to MSK? You know, there are two or three docs who are doing it. Um, I know some guys down in South Florida and some guys in, in Colorado that are doing it. Orthopedics is pretty uh, episodic. It's not continual. Right. So most people, you know, aren't aren't um, going to 
consume those concierge service when it's just a kind of one and done type of thing. So, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know what else you can offer your patients to get them to pay a little bit more for the service. I already give all my patients my email and contact information. So it's not much more I can do for them. I, mean, I give them immediate access to me. So I don't know what else I could bill for or, or demand an upcharge for. But, but in some markets, I mean, obviously it's worked in New York and Rich Burger's done it forever in Chicago. So you know, there are those little pockets of people who get a brand that allows them to charge more for stuff. But my personal bias is that most orthopedic surgeons are about the same. And there's not this, you know, one or two person who is far superior to the rest of the pack. Last question about branding. I, I heard it a lot from some surgeons out at AUKUS about building your brand. I was just curious if you had any thoughts about that. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think what is it? it takes a long time to build your brand and, and maybe just one bad patient to ruin it. I I think as long as you put your patients first, you'll be fine and that patients can see that as long as you're genuine and really care about your patients. For me, uh, you know, I think paying somebody else to do your brand is pretty much, you know, is non-genuine and people are going to and patients are going to realize that. So I think it's something that just takes a lot of thought and commitment on your part. Yeah, just spending time with your patients and being able to, to address them as uh, individuals and not just run them through a, a mill of, you know, and spending time and connecting with your patients is what it takes. Dr. Kurtz, thank you so much for coming on the show just to share your life yeah. with us. Uh, exciting stuff up there in Nashville. Yeah. I really appreciate you coming on. Yeah, Kevin, I think you're doing a phenomenal thing. Uh, and especially, I mean, I just remember back last year when you captured Larry Dorsch's story right before he passed. I thought that was so timely and so amazing that that at least is going to get uh, recorded in history. Uh, thanks to you. So I think uh, you're doing an amazing gift to the orthopedic community. So thank you for your work. Well, there was some real gold in them there, Hills. Thank you, Yosemite Sam, for that quote. And thank you, Dr. Kurtz and Zach, for bringing some real precious metals to the Device Nation audience. I took a lot of notes. A real bullet point for me from Dr. Kurtz, I pretty much summed up as, I've got a fever and the only prescription is more growth and more volume. Zach handed us a real gem on the empathy side on how to accomplish just just that, and Dr. Kurtz bookended it perfectly with a call for better communication and just being genuine to pull off the same. You do these three things well, good things are going to happen. When he dropped that comment about patients not remembering their former surgeons' names and what a lost opportunity that represented, it reminded me of this great quote from Maya Angelou that I've shared before. I've learned that people will forget what you said, people will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. This is a call to action for us reps. What can we be doing better so our customers remember how we made them feel, remembering us at such a level that they call us out by name in a podcast interview, right? Again, thank you so much, Dr. Kurtz. Thank you, Zach. And thank you, the listener, for being part of the audience. Big announcement coming soon on how we here at Device Nation are going to be able to serve you at a whole new level. I cannot wait to tell you about it. Hope you all have a wonderful week and so look forward to seeing you all next time. <laughs>